0: Amen. Amen. A little misfire there. Sorry about that. See, if I would have one of these, I would have known. Okay, well, good morning. Nice to see everybody here. Uh, I really was encouraged by Justin Pink's communion, weren't you? Uh, It's great to see him up here. You know, I really appreciate his humility. And his vulnerability and his realness, and uh, I really want to go for his shaved head look. I was talking to Mia about that. I want to shave my head. She said you should probably go the natural route, just let it like become that way more slowly. I'm I'm halfway there, Justin. Um, We also have a couple of orange bandanas. Are they here? Okay. Now let's wave them. Wave them in the air so everybody sees you. Now. In case you're not familiar, you, you may or may not have been here for Doug Arthur's sermon when he talked about tough mutters. But we have two tough mutter contestants that finished the race. We have. Go ahead and stand up, guys. Stand up. <clears throat> That's worthy. I don't think they can stand. They're still, they're still hurting. <clears throat> Ryan Toomey and Eddie Blandin. Amazing. Now, if you don't know what a tough mutter is, I understand it's a 10 mi- 10 miles. 10 mile obstacle course of hell through that culminates in electric shocks right did you get shocked okay well see you guys are great congratulations um it's kind of church we are it's how we roll so if you're visiting with us today welcome uh please stop by our, our guest services booth uh we have something for you if you didn't get it on the way in we have a little gift for you come get it And we're finishing our sermon series today that we've entitled Jesus 2016. And since Easter Sunday, we've been taking the opportunity to shift some of the focus away from the craziness of our presidential election cycle and focusing it on the perfect leader, which is Jesus. And we've been learning more about Jesus by looking at a number of the interactions that he had with people. Brian kicked us off on Easter Sunday talking about campaign promises. Jesus' promises are so much deeper and richer than any of the empty promises we get from the world today. He followed that up on April 3rd by talking about cabinet choices. Jesus chooses sinful seekers to follow him. You remember that one? Last week, Steve Ricci talked about how we have gotten Jesus' vote, and he gets our vote. And today I'm going to bring us home by continuing this theme of Jesus 2016, and the title of my sermon this morning is Executive Orders. So, I was intrigued by the title of this sermon, uh, because I was just, here's the title, preach on this. So i like, okay. So I did some quick research on presidential executive orders, and executive orders have been used by nearly every president all the way back to George Washington, and they can be particularly controversial. Uh, Critics have called executive orders legislation by other means, because they do carry the power of law. People are compelled to obey presidential orders. And supporters believe that executive orders are necessary for a president to effectively lead the country. So, whether you're on one side or the other, they are controversial. And historical will, you know, if you look at it over history, we've had some great presidential executive orders, we've had some not so great presidential executive orders. So, for example, some good ones Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. That was a good one, right? Good outcome. The Great Depression hit in the early 30s, FDR issued an executive order to create the Works Progress Administration, WPA. Now if you remember your history books, the WPA was a big deal, it employed 8.5 million people during the Great Depression, built 600,000 miles of roads, 125,000 bridges, 8,000 parks, 850 airports. So that was a big deal, good deal. After World War II, Harry Truman issued an executive order to desegregate our armed forces, so that's good. Executive orders have been used for good things, but we've seen some bad ones. So, some bad ones on the other hand. Ulysses S. Grant, after the Civil War, issued an executive order to create dozens of reservations for Native Americans. Mostly in extremely inhospitable lands where no one else wanted to live. That wasn't that good. Woodrow Wilson had some strange executive orders. So in 1884, Wilson signed an executive order that prohibited hunting with a lantern, torch, or any other artificial light. Apparently, that was a problem at the time. (laughs) Wilson also signed an order. This is even more bizarre. He signed an order that prohibited anyone of Chinese descent from entering the Panama Canal Zone. Apparently, that was a problem, too. That's kind of random, Woodrow. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what he has against the Chinese. But those were orders. Teddy Roosevelt used executive orders to award lucrative government jobs to his best friends. Imagine that, a corrupt politician. (laughs) World War II, after World War II, or during World War II, FDR signed an executive order to detain about 110,000 Japanese Americans in internment camps. Most of them were American citizens. So you get the idea. There's something about a president unilaterally making de facto laws that makes me uncomfortable. Because you know, I don't remember much from my high school government class, but I do remember that our three branches of government are designed to work on a checks and balances system. Remember that? So you don't want one branch of the government having one or too much power or excessive power. And many of us have seen how leaders can be corrupted by too much power. And I think Americans in general can be skeptical of authority in general. And that brings us to our focus today, which is Jesus. So without question, Jesus is the most influential executive, so to speak, to ever walk the earth. And he made some outlandish claims about himself, didn't he? And he issued many executive orders, so to speak. And as with any leader, people can question his authority, and they can be skeptical of him. And, you know, you'll ask, is Jesus just a great moral teacher, or was he really the son of God? You know, is he a, uh, this guy that lived 2,000 years ago, is he even relevant to our world today in 2016? Those are all questions that are, that are asked. And we're going to look at a brief video clip here that just gives us an introduction to how people think about Jesus. Oops. let's try it again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without, Without him nothing was made that has been made in, in him, him was the life and the life was the light of man. person. A man. Someone who lived a long time ago. He was in the world and though the world was made made through him, him, the world did not recognize him. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. He was a nice guy. A man in a book. Doesn't matter. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I thought a lot about it. I go back and forth. Was he the son of God? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. He is the way. The truth. The life. He's God. My King. My Savior. So you see that, that, that people's view of Jesus can be wide and varying. You know, Again, Jesus is a controversial figure. Some people have a visceral reaction when they just hear Jesus' name. Maybe you've met those people. Um, some think he's imaginary. Some think he was just a historical figure. Others make fun of him. And others really believe that he was the son of God. Others think that you know, he's what they want him to be. They create their own idea of what Jesus is. But each of us will decide... If Jesus gets our vote and our support, so to speak So today we're going to continue this focus on Jesus the leader And we're specifically going to look at three things We're going to talk, first of all, about the authority of Jesus Is his authority legitimate? And what executive powers does he have? Next we'll look at some of Jesus' executive orders Some of his commands and what he expects from his followers But we can't just stop with one and two because that's an incomplete view of Jesus. We're just thinking about his authority and his power. That's important, but that's not the whole story. So we're going to look at the rest of the story, which will put his authority and his powers and his orders into the right context. So there you have it, his authority, his, his power, his orders, and the rest of the story. And I'm hopeful that we come away from this with hopefully a fresh understanding of, of who Jesus is and how we should think about him and his executive orders and hopefully Jesus will get your vote in 2016. Let's pray as we get started. Father, we just come to you today just asking you to give us insight uh, into your scriptures that we're going to look at today, God. Just may your spirit lead this, and may, may you really reveal to us uh, how we need to think about Jesus, his authority, um, his orders, and most importantly, what he did for us, God. And I just pray we come away uh, encouraged and strengthened from this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start with the authority of Jesus. You know, as I mentioned, I think people can be skeptical of leaders in general, uh, especially leaders that claim to have our best interests at heart. Uh, I'll admit that, that I am jaded, but I just chuckle when, when I hear a politician from any political party say, we're going to make America great again. How often do you hear that? I don't even know what that means. We're going to make America great again. Okay. Okay. But let's take our discussion out of the realm of politics, just to be safe, because I know that flares up a lot of emotions. Where did Jesus get his authority as a leader? We know from the Bible that as Jesus began to do God's work, he immediately began to win over people's hearts by serving them and loving them and healing them. And that brought him into sharp conflict with the religious leaders of the day. Jesus ran afoul of a lot of the rules and the regulation that, that, that the religious leaders had created. And Jesus threatened their authority. He threatened their credibility. So in response, they began to question him and to persecute him. And we'll be looking primarily in John chapter 5 this morning, if you want to get your Bibles out and turn there. Here's where we see Jesus healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath. So this man used to beg, uh, and, and, and he, Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. Jesus healed him, he stood up, and Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk. You probably remember that story. And carrying his mat around on the Sabbath was a violation of the rules that had been created by the religious leaders governing the Sabbath. So we'll pick it up in John chapter 5, starting in verse 16, uh, to really see this interaction that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders of the time. So starting in verse 16, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show them even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So the Jewish leaders were understandably upset (laughs) because Jesus kind of overruled their authority to regulate the Sabbath. And he even claimed that God was his father, and that made him equal with God. And to the Jews, that was blasphemy. That was punishable by death. So the leaders were offended by Jesus and his authority. But isn't that the the response that that so many people today can have when they're confronted with the authority of Jesus? I mean, who does this guy think he is? Does this guy that lived 2,000 years ago have any authority over me living today? But we see some some insights here in Jesus' interaction into where his authority comes from. Jesus was only doing what he saw his Father doing because he was completely unified with the Father. So his legitimacy, his authority, actually comes from God himself. Jesus was healing the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed because that was the very thing the Father was doing. And his defense to the Jews was essentially this. If you criticize what I'm doing, you're actually criticizing God. Because I am one with God, and I do exactly what He is doing. <clears throat> and what exactly does God do? We see in the Bible that, you know, throughout, throughout the Bible, if you look throughout the Old Testament in particular, you see that God is a God of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. But He's also a God to be feared, right? But we get a glimpse of the Father's heart for the suffering through a number of places in the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, God spoke to Israel through Isaiah, and he told them about the kind of religion that he wants. In Isaiah 58, starting in verse 6, he says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God isn't interested in simply strict adherence to religious rules like fasting or like the Sabbath. But what he really wants from people is a heart to keep those in need in your crosshairs, to think about those in need, to help those in need, just like he helps people in need. And Jesus knew that's what the father wants. That's what his father is doing right up to the present day. Jesus talks in the present tense in John 5. So the father and the son are working in perfect union and perfect, you know, together. And they're working together even as we sit here today. That's why Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, Jesus's authority unmistakably comes from God because he does exactly what his father does and what his father wants. As Jesus says, healing a paralyzed man was just the beginning. I mean, the father wants to heal the whole person, spiritually and physically, right? And that's exactly what Jesus has the authority to do. He was in essence saying, you haven't seen anything yet. This paralyzed beggar can walk, but wait until I give people eternal life. Wait until I rise from the dead. The best is yet to come. You know, we can also think about Jesus' authority through another lens. And why did Jesus have such influence on people? Because influence is really authority. Authority is influence. They're really kind of interchangeable. But his title is the Son of God. But he doesn't just rely on his title to influence people, does he? He earned people's respect by showing them the love of God. And he won over people's hearts. Love is what gave him authority and influence. You know, titles are given, but influence is earned. Think about that. Titles are given, but influence is earned. And Jesus earned it. You know, Many of you know that I spent 20 years in the corporate world before going into the ministry uh, about six, seven months ago. And in 2010, I was interviewing for this, this senior leadership position in the company I was working for. And I had various interviews that kind of culminated in this panel interview. Have any of you ever done a panel interview in front of a group of people? It's not fun. So I had six senior executives that were just grilling me for like two hours. And one of them asked me, have you ever worked in a Matrix organization? And I had to be honest. I'm like, I have no clue what a Matrix organization is. So no, I haven't. But I love Matrix the movie. Does that <laughs> count? <laughs> and I got a chuckle out of a couple of them. But by the grace of God, I got the job somehow. And I subsequently learned that in a matrix organization, that simply means that various functional areas of the company have to work together uh, to get results. They have to collaborate. And I was responsible for a significant line of business, our 401 k business. And I had to collaborate with sales and marketing and IT and service and all the different areas of the company to ensure the success of my business line. And working in a matrix organization does require tremendous influence. And you can't just rely on your title to get things done. I mean, I learned some hard lessons about leading through influence, and one of the primary ones I learned is that you can't really influence anyone if they perceive that you're just trying to advance your agenda with no regard to theirs. Uh, And some of you know I'm talking about. If you worked in those positions, you have to be thinking about what others need, not just what you need. And Jesus knew that. I mean, he knew as a leader that his pattern was to love people before he challenged them to do anything. He just didn't use his title as the son of God. He earned authority by loving people and winning over their hearts, which was something the Jewish leaders didn't quite grasp, did they? And so many leaders don't grasp that today. So Jesus had authority from God, but what exactly is he authorized to do? What are his executive powers? I mean, we know that modern presidents have defined powers in the executive branch. And what happens if they overstep or abuse those powers? They're called to the carpet, right? There is accountability there with the other branches of government. Well, God gave Jesus specific powers. And we'll continue in John 5, starting in verse 21, to see what those powers are. Verse 21, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son." Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the, fa- the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. And those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So, first of all, like the Father, Jesus has the executive power to give life. During his life on earth, that was a very literal power. He literally would raise dead people to life. And now we know today, he can also bring the spiritually dead back to life, right? And he has the power to give life. So, that's an incredible executive power. But God gave Jesus a second power. And Jesus has the power to judge all of mankind. God has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And Jesus explains that all who are in their graves will one day come out to face judgment. Every knee will bow before Jesus. And those who have heard the Son of God and changed how they live because of their faith in Him, their souls will live forever. And those who do not believe and who do evil will be condemned. And verse 27 tells us why Jesus has been given the power to judge. Because he's the son of man. He's been a man himself, and he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. And that makes him a fair judge. Jesus will be just in his judgment because he too was human. And he's seeking to please the Father. So Jesus has some amazing powers. He gives life. He will judge every person. His authority comes directly from God because he's doing exactly what God does. Perhaps you read that and maybe you're still skeptical. But let's just take Jesus' claims at face value for a moment. If you really, you know, just stop and, and believe that this guy really is appointed by God to be your judge. Let's just assume that for a minute. And if this man really does decide if you get eternal life or not, doesn't it make sense to at least investigate what his expectations are? <laughs> if he really has those powers, we better know what his executive orders are, right? We better be very familiar with what his executive orders are if we have to give account to him someday. Unfortunately, his orders were recorded by the very men who walked with him. We have it all in the Bible. And if you're not familiar with his executive orders, I encourage you to please sit down and study the Bible with us. I mean, we have a personal Bible study series where we will show you in the Bible exactly what Jesus taught and what he wants for your life. And we would love to do that. Most people today have at least a vague idea of what Jesus taught. And oftentimes, though, that view is incomplete because people haven't taken the time to study out what the Bible says and what Jesus really taught. That was definitely my situation. I mean, I went to church growing up and I heard the Bible stories about Jesus and But it really wasn't until my mid-20s that I really decided to sit down and study the Bible myself. And prior to that, I had this image from Sunday school. It's kind of the Jesus of the stained glass window, you know, with the the flowing hair and the robes and the, the cane and the lambs coming up to him and, you know, all peace and love. And I didn't understand his executive orders, though, until I read the Bible. And then my view of him really totally transformed. I said, this is Jesus? I mean, it was really like night and day when I really read the Bible. And to understand Jesus' orders, his executive orders, you really have to have the context of of what came before Jesus. Prior to Jesus, and if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen this, but prior to Jesus, the Jews were required to, to follow very detailed laws, weren't they? Regulations. There were over 600 laws and regulations that governed really every aspect of life. So there were rules around how to pray how to love, how to treat the poor and the Gentiles. Uh, There were rules about marriage and divorce. There were rules about sexual relations. There were specific seasons and celebrations that had to be observed. There were rules about your diet and what you ate. There were rules about how you ran your business, how you treated your employees. Rules about taking oaths and vows, judicial rules, property rights, criminal laws and how to punish people, idolatry. Clothing, how to, how to dress, how to, how to do agriculture. There were rules for the priests on how to worship. There were tithes and offerings and sacrifices that had to be made. There were rules around how to be ritually pure, to be able to worship in the temple. Rules around skin conditions, how to treat people with skin conditions. There were rules about how to conduct warfare. So when Jesus came on the scene, he fulfilled all of those Old Testament laws and regulations. He alone perfectly met all the requirements. And he replaced that Old Testament law with a new law. And let's just call it the law of Christ. And it was an even higher standard. It was simpler, but it was an even higher standard. Jesus said himself that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, just complying with the Old Testament law wasn't enough. And many religious leaders of the day followed the Old Testament with great fervor. But their hearts were still far from God. And Jesus knew that. And so when we get to Matthews chapter 5 and 6, Jesus presented his executive orders in what's oftentimes called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not going to read through it today because we don't have time. But, but think of it as Jesus' inauguration speech as, as a leader. And, and so much of the speech, you know, he contrasts the Old Way, the Old Testament way, with his way, with the new way. And the old way versus his way, which was more of a way of the heart. And I just summarized it in a, in a, in a sketch here, just to kind of compare how, how the old way differed from the new way. In the Old Testament, it said, do not murder. Jesus said, don't even be angry. Don't even be angry with your brother, because what does that lead to? It can lead to murder, can lead to, to bad things. The old way said, do not commit adultery. The new way said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's about the heart. If you divorce, the old way, if you divorce, give your wife a certificate of divorce or your spouse a certificate of divorce. In the new way, Jesus said, don't even bring that into the equation. Divorce and remarriage is not an option unless it's the case of infidelity. In the old way, it said, keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. Jesus said, don't swear at all. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. The old way said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, revenge. But Jesus taught, don't retaliate. Someone hits you in the cheek, give them the other cheek as well. The old way said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus said, what good is it if you just love the people that love you? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The old way was all about giving to the needy and praying on the street corners and fasting. And the teachers of the law did it all for people to see. Big show, look at how pious I am. Jesus said, do those things, but do them in secret. Because the only one that needs to see it is God himself, not everybody else. And get your reward from God. The old way was to store up treasures on earth. This was to store up treasures in heaven in Jesus' way. So you can see that Jesus expects so much more of people. And he's more concerned with people's heart than with this adherence to a bunch of rules and regulations that didn't change people's hearts. So his executive orders cut straight to the heart and dealt with the heart. So if you just summarize what we've talked about so far, Jesus has all authority because he's perfectly united with God. Jesus will be your judge and my judge. He alone has the power to give you eternal life. And Jesus' executive orders impose a higher standard of morality, don't they? A higher standard. And all of these things are critically important to realize, to understand about Jesus. But that alone, his power, his authority, his orders, that's an incomplete view of Jesus. It's incomplete. Because you see, if people only know Jesus' authority and his power and his orders, they will miss the good news about him. And and, and usually when people just fixate on his authority and his power and his rules, they usually take one of two paths. (laughs) The first path is this. Many people when they're confronted with the real Jesus they just decide it's too challenging. He's way too challenging. His executive orders conflict with my with my lifestyle. And there's no way I could meet that moral standard. There's no way. To look at a woman lustfully is adultery? Men say this like there's no way I could ever do that. So so the first group either walks away from Jesus or they mold him into something more palatable. And many people want Jesus that's just a benevolent Savior and who will grant them forgiveness regardless of how they live. And that was my view of Jesus for the first 25 years of my life. You know, for some reason, I always had in my mind this sermon that was preached. I was probably like a preteen. And this minister, when I was a kid, said, Hey, Jesus' blood's covered all your sins, so God can't see your sins. And that is absolutely true for disciples of Jesus, that we are clothed in Christ. But I took it way too far. (laughs) I mean, I thought it meant that Jesus had died for me, so I could live however I wanted to live. As long as I believed in Jesus and wasn't too bad, so to speak, I would be just fine with God. I was okay if I regularly got drunk, starting in high school and got worse and worse through college. Hey, Jesus' blood covered all of that. God can't see it. It was okay if I had sexual relationships outside of marriage, because Jesus' blood covered all of that. It was okay, you know, if I, if I continued just to hate people, because Jesus' blood covered all of that. So my standard of, of morality was my own. and, and I, was, I, I wasn't studying the Bible to know any different. I definitely molded Jesus into this benevolent Savior who wouldn't judge me for how I lived. And so that's the first path that people can take when you just focus on His rules and His authority. You create a more palatable Jesus or you just walk away. But the other path, That people can follow when you are confronted with the authority of Jesus is the path of legalism. I mean, you recognize you may recognize that Jesus does have all authority. One day he will judge me for how I live. And I see all of these executive orders in the standard of morality in the Bible. So I'm going to work as hard as I can to follow all of those rules. And yes, my life is going to be drudgery, but I am compelled (laughs) to obey him. I will earn his favor so that he has to accept me because I've followed all the rules. You know, I think an analogy for legalism might be like this. It's like going to the DMV, okay? Are any of you joyful when you have to go to the DMV? Or does it feel like work to go to the DMV or punishment? Yeah. (laughs) For some years, my walk with Jesus was like a DMV visit. Like with the DMV, I knew I was required to submit... I had to submit, but I did it out of compulsion, not out of joy. Quick DMV story. I've got to to do a tangent here. So I left California in 2003 with my wife, Mia, and enjoyed an eight-year hiatus from the California DMV until I returned in 2011. And at that point, I had to exchange my Washington State driver's license for a California driver's license, a seemingly simple task, right? Wrong. I still had post-traumatic stress disorder from my first DMV experiences in the mid-90s when I first moved here, and I remembered one thing from that. Always, always have an appointment when you go to the DMV. Never go to the DMV without an appointment. You're just asking for misery. So I went online and made the appointment like four weeks out, and I show up on that appointment day with my slip of paper. I got an appointment. And i pulling up to that DMV office in Gardena, and what do I see? I see around the building, two lines. One building is like one. line is like three times around the building. And then there was a shorter line that was like about three-quarters of the way around the building. I'm like, those aren't for me. I got an appointment. I have this slip of paper that I have an appointment. So as I got closer to my dismay, I saw that that, that three-quarter lap line was actually my line for appointments. So I jump in that line, and I was in there for 45 minutes, and I get up to this DMV triage lady. I think her name was Sue. She looks like this lady here. And she's like, what do you need? I go, I just need to get a, 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 a California license. She goes, go, go get in that line over there. So another line. So I get in that line. 45 minutes later, I get up to this next civil servant who says to me, what do you want? I said, I told Sue what I wanted, but I, wanted, I want a Washington driver's license. or Excuse me, I want a California driver's license. I want to exchange it. And she looks at me with sort of this annoyed at the world look, you know, like I'm bothering her. And she, she asked me, well, okay, well, if you want it, I need to see another form of ID. I need to see a birth certificate or a passport. And I said, well, my heart sank. I was like, but I have a form of ID. It's my Washington driver's license. See my picture's right there. There's a stamp on it and everything. It's official. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't accept that as a valid ID. You'll need to go get a birth certificate or a passport and make a new appointment. The next one's three weeks out. So I, uh, I praise God that I'm a disciple of Jesus. I would have went postal right there at that moment. I was 90 minutes in to find out I didn't have the right documents. So I went away dejected and angry, and I drove home. And then I realized when I got home, I still got my appointment lit. So I grabbed my, my, my every form of ID I could find, my passport, my birth certificate out of the safe, everything I could muster, and I raced back to the DMV. I get in the line. I get up to the new triage lady. Sue had stepped out for a smoke. I get to the new lady. She sends me to the next civil servant who was a different lady. Had no clue that I'd already been there. And I said, she said, what do you need? I said, I need to get a Washington, excuse me, a California driver's license. Here's my Washington one. She's like, oh, no problem. Just go over there. We'll get your picture. You'll get out of here real quick. Didn't even ask for the ID. Didn't even ask for it. I was just like, is this real? Am I dreaming this? So Like you can't make this stuff up, you know? And I share all of this just to illustrate what it's like to be compelled to obey authority, to follow rules because you have to. But it feels like punishment the entire time, just like obeying the DMV. And as unfortunate, unfortunately, as I look back at my 17 years now as a disciple, I think I've sometimes been on this path of legalism. You know, when I did study the Bible, when I first became a Christian, I I knew the real Jesus, and I was initially really grateful for what he did for me on the cross, but eventually that gratitude turned into compulsion and legalism. I was compelled to follow all of Jesus' rules, but not out of joy. I was just checking the box. Go Go to church, check. Pray, check. Quiet time, check. Read the Bible, check. You know, go to midweek, check. All of that. Serve the poor, check. But my heart really wasn't in it. And candidly, I wasn't really interested in inviting other people to become part of my legalistic hell either. That was just where I was. So, so whether it's that path, when you're confronted with Jesus' authority, the path of creating your own Jesus, or whether it's the path of legalism, both of those, both of those paths really miss the point of what Jesus is truly all about. You see, Jesus' authority, his power, you know, his executive orders, they are critically important. But they really aren't good news, are they? I mean, seriously, would you run and tell someone, good news! You have a judge appointed by God who will hold you to a seemingly impossible moral standard, and if you walk away from him, you're going to go to hell. (laughs) Aren't you fired up about that? (laughs) Not. No, we have to embrace the rest of the story. Luke 18, verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. So, it's interesting, Jesus began to reveal the good news about himself, really to his closest followers, before he died. And, you know, he reveals that he is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament that had been written about hundreds of years before he came there. Stephen Ricci talked a bit about that last week, and he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He alone perfectly meets the requirements of the law. That's good news. He also described this incredibly humiliating and awful punishment that awaited him in Jerusalem he would be handed over to the Gentiles, which meant to the Romans. And that was a terrifying thought because, again, if you know your history, the Romans excelled at torturing and executing those who they considered enemies of Caesar. And today it might be the equivalent, I'm trying to think what an analogy, it might be the equivalent of being handed over to ISIS. You've seen some of the stuff ISIS does to people, like beheading. Well, in those days, beheading was considered kind. You know, ex- you know it was quick, Right. Ex- uh, like, like crucifixion was, was the most painful possible death. So Jesus said he was going to be crucified. Jesus said he'd be mocked and insulted and spit on and flogged and executed. So, so why is that good news? Why would a perfect follower of the Jewish law have to be punished at all? Especially in this horrific way. So the answer is really simple. He didn't have to. Jesus willingly chose to take the punishment for you, And for me, he was flogged. He was insulted. He was nailed to a cross and he ultimately descended into hell because he saw you sitting there today. He wants you to understand how much he really loves you and what lengths he will go to, to win your heart so that you have a chance to be with Jesus and God for all eternity. And the good news is that Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve. That's the good news. It's your sin and it's my sin that put him on the cross. And it's you and I that get the reward for his perfect life. All those medals he gets for complying with all the Old Testament rules, those should be pinned to his chest, but we get the reward for that. Think about that. A disciple of Jesus gets to go to heaven because Jesus rose again and, and On the third day he rose, and now he's sitting at the Father's right hand to intercede for us. Folks, authority, power, executive orders of Jesus really won't make sense without understanding the good news. The Bible says that even his 12 disciples that knew him the best, that spent the most time with him, they didn't even understand the good news at first. They didn't understand how Jesus' death could be a good thing. They didn't understand how Jesus could possibly rise from the dead. It hadn't happened yet. They didn't get it until later. But now it has happened and it's all been accomplished and it's recorded in the Bible for you to read. Jesus has died. He's risen just as he said he would. And the question is, do you really get it? Do you really understand what it means to you personally? Have you lost touch with what it means to you personally? I know I have periodically over the years. It's when you understand and embrace what Jesus did for you and what he offers you. That's when Christianity begins to make sense. You see, it's not about Jesus lording his authority over you and waiting to judge you based on an impossible standard. It's not just about a a set of executive orders that, that you're required to adhere to to save yourself. No, Jesus died to give you eternal life. And I'll say it again. Jesus died to give you eternal life. Do you really believe it? If you do, then the next step you take is critical. your salvation. And I will tell you, the next step is not to just say a prayer and ask Jesus to come into your heart, have an emotional experience, and then go right back to business as usual. That's not the next step. Your belief in Jesus is demonstrated by how you live in response to what he did. And we see in the Bible, the first followers of Jesus, how they responded to what he did for them. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's simple. They repented they turned away from their sins. They were baptized. And then they joined this community of believers that really loved each other. So when you're grateful for his forgiveness and for eternal life, his executive orders won't feel like the DMV. <laughs> their truth in their life. And you, you will make every effort to obey his commands, not out of a spirit of legalism, as if you had to earn your salvation, but your motivation will be gratitude. and it'll be joy for Jesus' gift of salvation. That's what characterizes a disciple of Jesus. There's nothing you won't do for Jesus because there's nothing he didn't do for you. And as a disciple of Jesus, you'll no longer feel the need to modify Jesus into someone who condones your sinful lifestyle because you'll realize that, that life with the real Jesus is infinitely better than some contrived Jesus of your imagination. And I can certainly attest to that because, you know, I thought that that to be a real follower of Christ, I would have to give up all the fun things in life and go to the DMV, so to speak. (laughs) But after 17 years as a disciple, I can tell you that life is so much better, so much more fulfilling. And the sins that I was hanging on to before I was a disciple actually made me a slave. They didn't make me more free. Those things I thought I wanted to hang on to, I don't miss them. Life is so much better without it. And so now we come full circle. (laughs) Back to Jesus. He's the chief executive who makes all of this possible. He alone is the perfect leader. He has all the authority, yes. Yes, he has the power to judge you someday. Yes, he has issued executive orders that if you follow, that will change your life for the better. But most importantly, he is the only leader Who will ever love you enough to die for you, to give you eternal life in heaven? So don't try to morph him into something he's not. Don't just fixate on the executive orders and miss the good news about him. Embrace the good news and let Jesus' love motivate you to obey him, to joyfully and gladly obey him. I'll close with the words of A.W. Tozer, who, who tries to capture... You know, how Jesus feels about you. Uh, This guy's a minister from from the 20th century. And he writes, Jesus Christ came not to condemn you, but to save you. Knowing your name, knowing all about you, knowing your weight right now, knowing your age, knowing what you do, knowing where you live, knowing what you ate for supper, and what you will eat for breakfast, where you will sleep tonight, how much your clothing costs, who your parents were. He knows you individually as though there were not another person in the entire world. He died for you as certainly as if you had been the only lost one. He knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. If you're a guest with us today, we urge you, study the Bible with us, will show you the path forward. His love and his offer of salvation are extraordinary. They're extraordinary. He just didn't die for the world. He died for you. So please don't walk away from that and don't miss the good news. Thank you and may God bless you all.